0: And I got to tell you guys, I absolutely loved being on Mission Serve last year, and I cannot wait to be back on Mission Serve this year. Uh, partly, obviously, because it is something awesome to just enter into our city, uh, into all of the different arenas in which our city tends to work and struggle and show up and say, hey, we're here to serve. What, what do you need? And then be able to step in and make change. So I, I always love being part of anything where we get to see tangible, immediate, and and awesome change take place, whether it's locally or globally in our story. But the other thing that I love about Mission Serve and that I loved last year about it is that it is this moment in time that brings us all together, puts shirts on all of us, and you kind of look around and you suddenly realize that as we're living out mission every day, we're not doing it alone. We've got this crowd of people living on mission with us, and as we live out that mission, it actually does make tangible change. It actually does shape things and does change things, because as we headed out uh, all all of those people last year to all the different projects and then came back together at the end of it and kind of celebrated together, you had this deep sense in you that like, man, I'm on mission with others and together we can make change. And this is a very important thing to experience once in a while in such tangible form because the truth is that is actually what's happening every day. Every day that you and I leave this place and go live out the gospel in our circles of influence, in our relationships, in our resources, in our circumstances, and we're all doing it, we are actually affecting tremendous change in our community every day. Trouble is, it doesn't feel like that, does it? See, we, we know that to be true, but when you actually leave here, you don't get a crowd of people in green shirts with you. You get to go home to that lonely place, uh, to that lonely neighbor, to that lonely workplace, and, and alone you get to face the, the, the giants, right? And so uh, many days, one, in our missional life, we feel very alone. And two, the truth is, that missional life is really, really hard and doesn't feel like it's making any change on any one particular day. See, mission service is nice. You go out in the morning, you come back in the afternoon, world has changed. It's awesome. See, in my home, you go out in the morning and in the morning and in the morning and in the morning for 20 years and you go, we've made no progress. We've gone nowhere. Now, you have actually, but it doesn't feel that way. I, I was reminded of that this week again Uh, As, as Brooke and I kind of entered a little moment in time. Uh, because, you know, here in, in our home, as many of you know, we, we have the privilege of parenting eight children, and uh, s- uh, several of our, our children uh, are, are, are kind of c- uh, colliding with one another uh, in, the, in the great uh, uh, sort of, uh, 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 what, do you, what do you call it, fire of family, let's call it that, right? And so um, as we are working our way through that story over the last two to three years, as, as we've been navigating that, uh, we have come a very, very long way. We have, as I look back, climbed mountains and crossed oceans. I mean, really, we have traveled a tremendous distance, and and our family has has become a family in, in tremendous ways. And so th- there, are, there are many things to look back on and go, wow, it is miraculous where we have come to. And it's such a joy. And, th- and then this last week, uh, Brooke and I got the opportunity to get away for a couple of days. We went down to Miami uh, to an Acts 29 pastor's retreat. Uh, Acts 29 puts on this retreat for pastors and their wives that are part of the movement. And you get to just kind of go down Hang out with uh, you know, hundreds of other pastors and their wives, listening to some great teaching, worshipping together, and then just networking over uh, lunches and, and, and hangout times. And on top of that, they give you all this free time uh, throughout the three days, because it's not a conference, it's a retreat. And so you have all this free time. So Brooke and I, I mean, on multiple occasions, it was just the two of us. Just walking down the road, looking for a little Cuban restaurant, or hanging on the beach for a little bit, just walking along. And and you know, every nerve ending in you is waiting for that, Mommy! Daddy! Daddy! And it just never comes. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's a miracle. And so you're walking down and you're enjoying each other. And and we actually had several real conversations with one another without any interruption. It was unbelievable. And so you kind of feel like you're kind of coming out of the waters. You know, you're like, oh, oh, that's air. Oh, that's so, so good. That's so fresh. It's so beautiful. And you, you know, you're not, you're not, you don't feel like you're, you're sort of swimming for dear life anymore. And, And it was just this really great time away. And then we got in the car, and we made the drive back to Orlando from Miami. And you're driving on the road on your way back, and it feels like in some small way, like the world is coming and grabbing you and going, back under the water you go. You're like, I was breathing in Miami. No, no, don't do it. And you're driving, like a real world coming. And you have those conversations. We're getting back into the real deal now, the real world, real reality. And, And when we go away, as, as wondrous as that is, as we come back into the missional world in which we live, uh, in our neighborhood, in our home, there is always this adjustment period that needs to take place. Because the fact is, you've, you've had all this freedom for a couple of days, and that freedom is about to be robbed of you again, and you have to adjust to that. And so I, I know as we come in, it's almost an inevitability now that the first 24 to 48 hours of returning into the world we live, it, it is not going to go well. It never goes well because, because you're, you're reminded of the, of the constant uh, uh, affront of offenses and realities that come your way because children are kids, right? I mean, they're kids. They're, they're just trying to live their little selfish lives. I mean, let, you know, let them do their thing, right? And, and you are the recipient of that, right? So we come back in. Uh, to our world, and I'm like, this is not going to go well. Now, we come back Thursday night. Friday is 4th of July, and Friday afternoon, our missional community is getting together for 4th of July to have an awesome time together on the lake, hanging out. Now, just so you know, our missional community, uh, we have six families. Two of the families have kids that are grown. That means they're sort of in college or beyond. The other four families, between those four families, we have 26 children. So when we talk about a boating day uh, on the lake with our missional community, it's 26 little kids who all want a tube on a tube that fits six. I made that tube fit nine. I'm telling you, it can be done. But, you know, so, so we're gearing up for this for this time together that's going to be awesome and fun, but it's going to be like crazy going nuts. And Thursday morning, I mean, Friday morning we wake up and uh, we're trying to get through and uh, multiple massive explosions in our home. I mean, clashes between parents and children. I'm walking around all tense. Brooke is all tense. The kids are all tense. And listen, four of my kids are in Virginia. So we only had four. That was the four boys, I'll give you that. So that, that kind of qualifies as nine. But, um, but, but. We, we're dealing on Thursday morning with this, and, and the morning is just rough. I mean, it's just rough in our house, and multiple occasions, I, I'm, I'm launching out with like, stop that, that's it, you're up, in the... and I'm like, oh my gosh, this day is going to go so badly, and when, when I'm in the middle of that time, right, I mean, I, I, I know what's supposed to be happening in here, supposed to be patient, supposed to be kind, supposed to be good. I mean, I got the fruit of the Spirit memorized, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. Oh, beautiful. I am void of them all, right, in my home. It's like, rah, and, and, and it gets to be a little discouraging, doesn't it? Because, because I'm empowered by the Spirit of God, stepping into mission. I know what I can and should feel, but I feel very little of it. And it is in those places, in the dark places of mission, where you feel overwhelmed and, and pressed and, and crushed. And you're like, man, God, I, I don't know that I'm the right person for this story. Have you ever felt that way? I, I wasn't made for this. Check the files. You got the wrong person. You should have picked Paul. Paul. He seems to be made for it, not me. I have heard that in my home multiple occasions out of my mouth and my wife's mouth. We, 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 we weren't made for this. This is too big. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, maybe not in some above and beyond missional choice you made to bring some deal into your home or step out on the mission field. But what about being called into a relationship in, in your immediate or extended family that's been really, really difficult, really tough, Maybe you have a family member that struggles with addiction and you've gone around that circle over and over again. And, and you, you want to bail, you want to get out, you want to because you're you're trapped, you're underwater, you feel like you're drowning. You're like, oh, but God seems to be going, just stay in the game, set appropriate boundaries, but stay in the game. I've called you to this. This is your mission. And you're like, it's too hard. It's too hard. I want out. How about resources? Have you ever struggled there? Sitting, trying to figure out how to navigate the bills so that they all get paid when you know they won't. And yet you've got this haunting sense in you that you want to you extend resources to mission, but, but you're afraid to do that because you don't even have enough to do what you need to do. And, and you're struggling with that because that job, it was a good job and you worked hard, but somehow they cut back. You, you did nothing wrong. You didn't, you didn't spend on credit cards like crazy. You just, you just lost your job. Have you ever been there, overwhelmed by the call of circumstance that God's calling into with the resources that are lacking? So we all are called on to mission in our circumstances, in our resources, in our relationships, and we all face difficult runs on mission. And when we do, we often, if you're like me, feel overwhelmed and too small for the story. And then when we feel overwhelmed and we feel weighted, we tend to start reacting in that sense. And so we don't act in a manner so worthy of the gospel. We react in a manner worthy of the flesh, right? I mean, we start failing God. I mean, at least I do. Shouting at my kids and going nuts and tense with my wife, and it's nobody's fault, just mine. And then I stand and I'm like, God, sorry. You, You should have picked someone stronger, someone better. As we travel through the story of the book of Acts, I gotta tell you, on occasion, multiple occasions, reading the stories in the book of Acts is very encouraging, right? It's encouraging why? Because we are reminded that we are not the first to be called on to mission. We are not the first to be sent out into difficult circumstances. We are not the first to be uh, faced with large circumstances and large lack of resources and large relational dynamics that are tough and difficult. We had others that have went uh, that have gone before us. So we look at Paul. We look at Barnabas. We look at John. We look at Peter. We look at these guys and we see them head out into mission. And their circumstances, frankly, are often even more dramatic than ours. And so there is a sense of encouragement there that you go, wow, my life is Big and hard, but their life was bigger and harder. So that's encouraging, that's good. But there is also kind of a sense of discouragement in it, at least for me, as I step into the story. Because as big and difficult and crazy as their lives were, it's kind of like reading Facebook in the Bible sometimes, isn't it? I mean, you get like the, all the good stuff. Like, woo, look at that. I mean, there's a mom. Look at that project she did. Wow, look at those pictures. What a creative mom. I am a horrible mom, right? And you go, the other 23 and a half hours, she had the same horrible life you did. She just got creative for about 30 seconds. Don't be, and she had time to post it on Facebook. Awesome. See, we read on Facebook and we see these lives out there. And we're like, oh, this is amazing. I mean, look how much they love each other on Facebook. Oh, my husband's the best guy on the whole planet. Think. I'm like, yeah, but wait five minutes. They don't post the other stuff, they just post that, and it's usually on the anniversary. So that doesn't really count, does it? See, and sometimes I read scripture and I feel like that. Here's Paul and Barnabas. They're facing death every day. I mean, we followed them. I mean, they, they, Paul and Barnabas sent out from Antioch, they go to Cyprus. They work through Cyprus with a little bit of pushback. They come off Cyprus, they head up to Antioch of Poseidon in Galatia. They work their way through Galatia. Antioch of Poseidon, they face great opposition from the Jews and the Gentiles there after the gospel was well received and then kind of turned on them. They go down to Lystra, same deal, it gets really ugly there. They get to Derbe, they're terrible there. In this journey through Galatia, every step they take, they face relational opposition and dynamic circumstances of tremendous struggle. Uh, Paul gets stoned at one point. Stoned. I mean, crushed with rocks. He's, he's left for dead outside the city. Gets up, walks back in the city. And as all this is going on, what we watch Paul and Barnabas do is rise up above the circumstances. Courageously move the gospel forward. No matter what comes their way, they're like, oh, it's, it's all good. They're discerning, they're full of the Spirit, they're powerful, they they walk into any circumstance with great wonder, and every time something seems to be going wrong, uh, Paul has this ability to bring great wisdom to the table. I'm like, wow, that guy's so wise. The gospel is being challenged by the need for circumcision, and the law, and the sacrificial system, and Paul, in wondrous speeches, brings down that world. gets to the Jerusalem council, we were there with him. Paul and Barnabas talking there. Peter gets up. We sit among the great speeches of these men leading the gospel way in the the face of great opposition. We're like, man, the Spirit of God is just in them all the time. Don't you kind of feel like, gosh, I wish that was my life? Don't you sometimes? Because I don't know that I, I mean, I make mistakes all the time. I have arguments about dumb stuff. Have you ever had an argument about dumb stuff with one of your kids or your spouse or a friend or a coworker, and you walk away and you're like, what just happened? I mean, wh- what just came out of my... You're like, no, trying to catch the words and bring them back, but it's too late. Ever felt that way? And so Paul and Barnabas, we struggle because they just seem to transcend all of that. Listen to this. I'm just going to read this to you real quick. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, you can just kind of listen along with this. Um, I'm sorry, not Second Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to this. Th- this is what I'm talking about. This is kind of what feels sometimes to me a little Facebookish, right? Like, oh, it's just too good to be true, but it's true for them. Don't know if it's true for me. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. This is Paul uh, having faced unbelievable realities. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, you read stuff like that, and I'm like, I don't feel that way. Do you? I'm persecuted, but I'm not struck down. I'm like, I'm struck down. I'm struck down. I'm dying. I'm in despair. Save me, oh God. And then I read Paul and Barnabas, and I'm like, "Wow, wow, these guys are unbelievable. And then as we're traveling through the book of Acts, encouraged by the fact that they live big missional lives, but a little discouraged, they seem to transcend every circumstance with such brilliance and such wonder, we get to this story. And I got to tell you, when we're done with this story, I hope you're giggling like I am. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) I hope you feel that way, because I do. I love this story. This is such a great story for me. Turn with with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Would you? If you're using one of our Bibles that we've provided under the seats there, you can turn to page 601, page 601 or Acts chapter 15. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Acts 15, 36. Now in Acts 15, 35, it says these words, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So this is sort of the culmination of the entire journey we've spent with Paul and Barnabas so far. Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch. They have just carried the letter with them from the Jerusalem council stating that the gospel has set us free from all things and yet calling us to be bound as bond slaves to Christ. Christ submitting our freedoms to him for the sake of others, right? So this brilliant letter uh, with this incredible revelation about the gospel that you and I are totally free and yet totally bound simultaneously by the freedoms of the gospel. And so they are unpacking this in Antioch and the letter is kind of moving around and people are overjoyed and Paul and Barnabas are doing this and then this occurs, verse 36, and after some days Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. I love that. What a great start to the story, right? Paul and Barnabas are unpacking the freedoms of the gospel in Antioch. And Paul says to Barnabas, they've been traveling together for a long haul now. Barnabas has had Paul's back. Paul's had Barnabas' back. They have deep friendship. They have gone through literally life and death together in almost every way. I mean, this is, the, uh, this is the greatest partnership we have seen so far. Peter and John perhaps rivaling it, but really for the most part, Paul and Barnabas, Right? And Paul comes to Barnabas and goes, dude, I want to go back to Cyprus and Galatia. I want to carry this letter from the Jerusalem council back to them. I want to go see how the brothers are doing. I want to unpack for them the revelation of what we've discovered. See, that's how I feel every week. I step into this incredible thing called the Word of God, and then I can't wait for the weekend. Because I want to get here to unpack it with you. i got to tell you this stuff. It's unbelievable. And Paul and Barnabas want to head back out to go see all the people they've hung out with, to go and tell them what they've discovered about the gospel. That's exciting stuff. Aren't you excited? I'm excited. Now, look at this. Verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Okay, so Barnabas says to Paul, Hey, since we're heading back to Cyprus and up to Galatia, let's invite John Mark to come with us. Now, who is John Mark? John Mark is the same guy that traveled with them the very first time that they were sent out from Antioch, okay? So this guy, if you remember, in Acts chapter 13 when they were sent out from Antioch, it said they traveled to Cyprus and they traveled with John Mark, uh, with Paul and Barnabas. And John Mark was their sort of assistant, their helper. He got to come with them. He was there to kind of take care of the details and work with them. And they were going to travel through Cyprus and then up into um, Antioch of Poseidon and then up through Galatia with John Mark. But this is what kind of occurred. Take a look, verse, uh, verse 13 of chapter 13, just a page back. Now, Paul and his companions set sail for Pappus and came to Perga. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Poseidon. Okay, So we remember that John was traveling with them to Cyprus. And then when they headed up into Galatia, John left and went to Jerusalem. We're not told there why John left. But we find out now in this little story that maybe John's leaving wasn't quite as nice as it sounded back in chapter 13, right? Because here, look what happens. Barnabas says, hey, Paul, let's invite John to come with us back in there. And look what Paul says. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and had not gone with them to the work. Now, that's an interesting statement, right? You see what's beginning to brew here? Barnabas is saying, hey, we should invite John to come with us to Galatia because he missed out on the trip last time. Paul goes, uh-uh-uh, he didn't miss out on the trip, he bailed on us. I'm not taking John with us into Galatia when last time, when we needed him most, he went back to Jerusalem. Uh Uh-uh, no, that's not happening. See, what's happened here is we get this revelation that maybe John, when he left them the first time, he didn't necessarily leave because he had some great calling in Jerusalem. He left because he didn't want to go up to Galatia. Because look, let's face it, we knew what we were going to face in Galatia. At least these guys did. Galatia was not like this uh, fun territory. They were entering into Gentile territory. They were going to go to places that were highly unclean and difficult. They were going to go to places where they were probably going to face great hostility against the gospel. And John didn't want to go. So we don't know exactly the circumstances. Maybe John and Paul didn't get along. I don't know. I mean, Paul's a pretty harsh guy. I don't know that I would get along with Paul. You understand? So maybe John and Paul were kind of like, yeah, this isn't working. Maybe John didn't like the way Paul did ministry. What I do know is this, that John left at a critical juncture in the last mission trip. In that moment where it started mattering, John took off back to Jerusalem. So what is Barnabas doing right now? Barnabas is coming to Paul and saying, listen, we should give John another chance. We should give him a second chance. He's, he's apologized. He's ready to go with us. He wants to head up there. He wants to redeem the story that he kind of messed up last time and I want to take him with us. And Paul goes, uh, no, 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 no. I'm not taking John up to Galatia. We, we're not, it's not going to be easy, Barnabas. We're not going back to like happy land, okay? In Galatia, there's still a lot of opposition there. And remember, last time we were there, they were still arguing about circumcision versus the gospel in terms of how it should play. We got to carry this letter in there. We got arguments to have. I got to deal there with some harsh stuff. I'm not taking John with me. He's going to bail again. And if he doesn't bail, he's going to be a burden to our expedition. To which Barnabas, I'm sure, replied, I hear you, but I wholeheartedly disagree with you. John Mark needs a second chance. Everybody needs a second chance. Nobody should be uh, burned the first time and then we leave him out. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? Gave us a second chance? Frankly, Paul, isn't that exactly what I did for you? I mean, it was Barnabas that took Paul into every meeting when everyone thought Paul was still going to persecute them and trap them. It was Barnabas that introduced Paul to all the apostles and made a way for him. It was Barnabas that believed in Paul, even when Paul was not believable. So I can imagine Barnabas is going, no, dude, we're taking John Mark. No, we're not. We're not taking John Mark. Well, listen, if John Mark goes, I don't go. Fine. If you don't take John Mark, I ain't going fine well if you want to go without him go without him I'll go to Cyprus well, you go to Cyprus and don't come with me and you go Renaud where are you reading all this stuff I'm making it up but take a look <laughs> I'm telling you why I'm making it up okay I'm making it up because of this incredible statement right here look at this verse 39 and there arose a sharp disagreement So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. See what just happened here? Here's this crazy cool story. And in the middle of the story, Paul and Barnabas get in a room. And over John Mark going or not going, they break into a huge fight. And in the middle of this huge fight, there is no Spirit of God coming down, rescuing them from their foolishness. There is no discerning from the power of prophecy. There is no great fruit of the Spirit being born uh, in the argument between Paul and Barnabas. Here's how it ends. Barnabas goes, fine, you go, I'm going somewhere else. And Paul goes, fine, do whatever you want. I'm taking John Mark, fine, I'll take, I'll take someone else. And they part ways. We always hear this, at least in the circles I travel and, you know, uh, some, some great partnership breaks up and breaks up really well. And we go, you know, it's kind of a Paul and Barnabas breakup, you know. Like it, it went well, you know, just, just kind of, it was, it was good for the kingdom. It, it, it was nice. And I go, have you read the story? It didn't sound good to me. I don't want a Paul and Barnabas breakup. And they were mad at each other. And so much so that the church literally commends Paul to go up a different direction. They're like, yeah, I think it's a good idea you go to Galatia with Silas right now and let, let Barnabas go with John to Cyprus, okay? You two need some space, a little, time, a little time apart. Think about it. See, it's in this story where suddenly I find myself standing there feeling, feeling quite normal again, isn't it? I, I stand and I go, I, I could see myself doing this standing in a room with Barnabas, arguing my heart out about John Mark, leaving the room and going, fine, you go to Cyprus. I've done that in my house a thousand times. You, go to your room. That's it. You're in your room for an hour. I got the rest of the house because I'm the adult near the kid. How come I can't get the house and you get the room? Tough. When you grow up, you can do that. And then, you know, have you ever been in that moment, like right after the argument with your spouse or your roommate or your coworker, and you're walking away all mad? And in the back of your mind, you're going, "What have I done? What have I done? Why did I say that stuff? Why did I get so angry? It wasn't, it wasn't even about anything. I don't even know what we fought about. I just know we did. And now I'm mad, and I should be mad. I'm not going to say sorry, but I should say sorry. I don't know what to do." And it's in those places where you realize you're failing the gospel and you're failing God. And I stand here with Paul and I'm like, I bet Paul left that room. And as he was heading up with Silas up to Galatia, I bet he kept thinking to himself, I wish Barney was here, man. I, I really do. I, I, how did this happen? How, how did we end up here? See, a little later on, Paul reconciles with Barnabas and with John Mark. As a matter of fact, Paul will write later on that John Mark was a great asset to the kingdom of God and, and a great co-worker a great partner in the gospel. So clearly at some point, Paul kind of wakes up and goes, maybe I should have given John a second chance. Maybe just this once Barnabas was right. But for right now in, in the middle of this story, I love the way it ends. That they part ways and they go separate ways and they're mad at each other. And I kind of go, yeah. See, what this story shouts at us, what it screams at us, is that God didn't come to find a bunch of superheroes to use. He came to find a bunch of humans bunch of normal folk like you and me who struggle with anger and and struggle with uh, frustration and and struggle with madness and and struggle with mission and struggle with what's right and wrong and and struggle with which way they should go and which way they shouldn't get mad at each other and, and break up about silly things and argue about dumb stuff. So he uses those people and he doesn't just use them despite their humanity, he uses them in their humanity and in their weakness See, I walk into this story and I'm like, yes, thank you, Luke. Thank you, Spirit of God, for putting this one in there. I need it in the middle of this great movement of mission in the gospel with these great men just to hear that they're arguing about something stupid so that I can know, you know what? Sometimes I'm going to fail in the middle of the mission and God is going to shout back at me. That's why I'm using you. Not because you're giant and strong, but because you're human and weak. Because that's the place where I do the greatest work. I don't think our world needs a bunch of superheroes, honestly. Even the superhero movies, what are we trying to do with them? We're trying to make our superheroes more human. You know, they, they have relationships with uh, people of the opposite sex, and they break up, and they get all sad and cry, and their enemy's actually their dad, and so they're brokenhearted, and they cry in their room at night, and we're like, oh, look, they're human. They can climb walls and fly, but they're still human. See, what we actually want is we, we actually want human beings to be heroes, not superheroes to be heroes. And God goes, yeah, see the power in my story isn't that I can take you and make you perfect now so you can live this perfect life on mission without ever having anything go wrong. The beauty of my story is that in the middle of the real everyday struggle of humanity, I am going to do things in your story that's going to blow your mind and the mind of those watching. Paul articulates this in multiple places throughout the scripture where he talks about weakness and he talks about the great joy in weakness. But I think the place he probably best unpacks this concept is found in the, the letter he writes to the church in Corinth, the second one, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's on page 630 in case you're interested in going there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Listen to what Paul writes here. Now, this is the Paul that has struggled with Barnabas and has fallen about silly things and has, has, has made mistakes. At this point when he's writing this letter, he has gone through the round of realizing I blow it. I bet Paul has sat in a room on multiple occasions going, you picked the wrong guy. You picked the wrong guy. I don't have the personality for this. I tick everybody off. I create riots for crying out loud. You need someone like Barnabas. Chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So Paul starts with this. He says, listen, God has done something in me to keep me from from getting big-headed because of the story he's chosen for me. Paul has quite a story. Let's just give him that, right? I mean, he is writing most of the New Testament that we call the God-breathed word of the Lord, right? I mean, the stuff we read today that we say, the Spirit of God breathed this onto the pages through men, Paul wrote a bunch of it. Okay? So if you want to talk about a guy that's receiving unbelievable revelation from God, like, like word of God revelation from God, it's Paul. And not just like a sentence, Okay, books and books of it. So Paul says, look, since my story was one where I'm planting churches uh, in, in hostile territory and God is giving me revelation after revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so I can unpack it for these churches and for future generations. Uh, you might think I might start thinking of myself as a superhero, as one of the special chosen ones. But, but, but dude, I'm not. And, and, and here's how I know. Look, look what God allowed. It says here, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpass, surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. I love Paul. He, he loves flowery language sometimes. And he's A thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to come and harass me. I don't know what his problem was. I mean, it could have been his temper. It could have been some other deal. It could have been a physical ailment. They've written books about this stuff. If you ever pick up a book that tells you what uh, Paul's thorn was, throw it away. Nobody knows. They're making stuff up. I mean, I make stuff up too, but at least I tell you I'm doing that. Um, so listen, here's the deal, right? A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now look at this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I sh- that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For now listen, my power is made perfect in what? In what? in weakness. This is an insane statement from God. My power is made perfect in weakness. So therefore, by definition, in strength, what does God's power do? It is not made perfect in strength. God does not want superheroes. God wants humans through whom He will make His power perfect because we are what? Weak. We are weak. Now look, Paul goes on to actually complete this thought. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying here is this that our greatest liability from a kingdom perspective is our strength, not our weakness. Our strength is our greatest liability, our greatest problem. When we think we are strong and we can handle what God has given us and we can carry it well and we can prove to Him how awesome we are in the story He has given us, we are vulnerable and weak. If you feel strong enough for the story you're in, big enough for it, It's not overwhelming you. You're not creating damage left and right, constantly failing God because it's too big and you can hardly bear it. If everything feels comfortable and awesome and you're like, I got this, man, I got this. One of two things is going on. Either you are in a story far too small and you're not listening to God. You gotta go out there and get some bigger stories. Get a little overwhelmed. If you're not weak and overwhelmed, you're in trouble. Or you are overwhelmed. You're just pretending for Facebook and that's okay. But at some point it's gonna come crumbling down. Get real, man. Just get real. Tell people it's a little hard. It's a little hard. So we walk around church a lot and like, I'm I'm good. I'm blessed, brother. I mean, it sounds like your life's tough right now. No, 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 man. I got this. this. God's got this. And then you go home and cry in your bed at night. Don't do that. Come here and say, I'm I'm overwhelmed. It's hard. I mean, I'm in it, but it's overwhelming. See, because Paul said, listen, I boast in my weaknesses. I boast in my calamities. I, I boast in the troubles I have. In, in our American culture, uh, the culture in its, in its desire to give us a good life, which, which it certainly has. I mean, American dream has called us into big things, but it also has a dark side to it, and its dark side is that it communicates to us that we are entitled to and deserve a life of happiness, right? And then that has infiltrated into our American Christianity. And so what's happened is Christianity now in America and the Western culture and throughout the world has bought into this new philosophy that says this, since you belong to God and you're a child of the King, you should Expect and deserve and are t- entitled to a life of blessing and comfort and convenience and happiness. They, they, you know, they, the philosophy puts it differently. You, you should be happy. You should be wealthy. You should be healthy. Or you should have a bunch of friends. And, and Paul would step into that and go, I, I, I vehemently disagree with that philosophy. I, I boast in my calamities. I boast in my weaknesses. I, I boast in my trouble. Now, Paul doesn't have a poverty theology where he says if you're not poor and struggling and suffering, then you're not spiritual. That's, that's a, as dangerous and horrid as, as anything on the other side. But, but listen, here's the deal. What Paul says is this, I, I boast in the blessings God gives me. I, I boast in the weaknesses. See, calamity is not necessarily a sign that God ain't blessing you. We, we've bought into that. If you're struggling right now, if it's too hard, if life's too big, if circumstances have come your way that are ugly and difficult, if, if, you've, if you've gotten sick or you, your finances are falling apart uh, or, or things are, are tough, the well, first thing we do is run to God and say, God, would you tell me what I'm doing wrong so you can fix this? And sometimes God's going, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong. You, you, you're on planet Earth. Planet Earth is horrid sometimes. It, come, it, it rains on the good and the bad equally. But but you have the power to live in this circumstance and rise above it. Now look, if if you're in some circumstance because you've been acting foolish, you're know you in deep debt and your finances are falling apart because you thought spending was a lot of fun back in the day, and look, there's some repenting to be done and and some journey, but don't worry, God will bring you through that too. But sometimes circumstances just come and things just happen and relationships are just difficult and resources are just short and God says to us, listen, boast in your weakness and and, in your calamity. Boast in what I'm doing. Rise above it. There is a story that is perhaps, uh, not perhaps, it, it is my favorite story when it comes to the need for me to remind myself that when I am failing God, God is still big enough and I'm still in the right place. Because this is my greatest trouble, right? I step into mission. It's bigger than I thought it would be. It's, it feels weighty. And then under the weight of it, I start acting crazy, right? And I, and I start not acting nice. I have arguments about stupid stuff, right? And when I'm in the middle of that, I'm always reminded of my dear friend Peter. You've probably heard me share this before if you've been uh, around here at all. I did an entire message on this, but, but it, it, it is the story I come back to time and time and time again as I live out mission on the life I'm called to, whether it's in my relationships, resources, or circumstances. Peter was sitting at dinner with, uh, with Jesus one night. It was, at, in fact, the very night Jesus was going to be arrested. And, and Jesus says to Peter, listen, bro, uh, this very night, as the story unfolds, you are going to verbally deny me three times. Not once by accident, three intentional times. To which Peter rightly replies, as I would have if I had Peter's personality and was sitting in that room, Peter looks at Jesus and goes, I think dad miscommunicated with you because I ain't going to deny you. Look, I'm a fighter. I'm ready to die for you there is no way i'm going to deny you in the moment it matters most so come on jesus lead the way i'm with you i'll take the i'll take it with you man and and i will in fact no i'm not going to die after you i'm going to die before you they want you they take me now is that peter is that what peter would actually do absolutely you're kidding me do you see him in the garden roman soldiers show up to take jesus what does peter do Oh, hide behind Jesus. Uh uh-uh, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, he's with the God of the universe and he jumps in front of him. I got this, Jesus. I got this, man. Sh- you guys want him? You go through me. Rawr! Cuts the guy's ear off. So we already know who Peter is. We got that part. Jesus gets arrested after he rebukes Peter for his uh, crazy humanity, which I love. He's <laughs> like, Pete, calm down, bro. I got this. Get behind me. Gets arrested. John follows Jesus. Why? John is very connected with the high priest family. His family is highly connected. Uh, John and James were two connected folks. And so he had access into places that most of the disciples didn't. That's why John often stepped into places they didn't. Because he had access. So though it was a little dangerous for John to go with, it wasn't super dangerous. Because he's not with the mob in the courtyard. He is with the crowd. He's sort of Jesus' right hand man. And it was appropriate for them to bring a guy like that with them as they were arresting someone. As sort of a way to say, look, there was a witness there to hear this. So John goes with Jesus. Jesus, and he's with sort of the in crowd. The rest of the disciples, they take off and they go hide somewhere because they're scared. And Pete, man, he follows Jesus at a distance, makes his way into the mob, into the mob, and then crowds in with them into the courtyard. Now, I don't know that Peter necessarily planned on getting into the courtyard, but here he is. He's in the courtyard now. Now, the courtyard that they're in, right, this is inside the the priest's area. Rome has no place here. So what, what happens in the courtyard stays in the courtyard. And this mob is after blood. I mean, that's what they want. They want someone dead. Jesus, in particular, but they'll take one of his followers. That's that's fine too. They've been known to stone people very quickly or beat them to death with clubs. I mean, I'm I'm just saying that's legitimately where Peter's at. He is in the middle of the wasp's nest and he's warming his hands by a fire, and he's looking around and like, this is I I shouldn't have come. Oh my goodness! If you've ever felt overwhelmed in your missional story, just go stand with Peter by the fire for a second. Like, I think I'm going to die right here. And these aren't Roman soldiers. Like, this isn't going to be pretty. I don't, I don't even have a sword. And Jesus is handcuffed up there on a, on a thing, and they're dealing with him. So some guy says to Peter, hey, hey, aren't you the dude that was with Jesus? I mean, what would you do? And come on, what would you do? Yeah, that's me. You want to fight it out? Uh, sorry. No, you go, uh, And I, I think you have the wrong guy, man. <laughs> all right, it's all good. Just breathe, Pete, just breathe. Somebody says it a second time. Nah, man, it's not me. Third time, look, leave me alone. I don't even know the guy. Three times verbally, absolutely and completely denies Christ. Jesus turns and looks at Peter just as the rooster makes its morning sound. And I've told you this before. As much as we often think of that as a rebuke, I see no rebuke in it whatsoever. Why would Jesus have told Peter the night before this is what's going to happen if he wanted to just embarrass him another time? I told him the night before because Jesus is making a statement as he always does. You are going to fail me. It is going to get ugly when you're on mission. You are going to be weak. But don't worry, I already planned on that. I already got that covered. I already, I'm telling you ahead of time so when it happens you don't get bent out of shape. You are going to be standing in the middle of a courtyard with a bunch of killers and you're going to deny me there and I want to tell you right now it's going to be okay. Because I'm glad you're in the courtyard with me, man. We know this because just a few moments later, you know, 40 days or so, Jesus is standing on a beach with Peter. And what does he do? He looks at Peter and he says, hey, Pete, come here. Do you love me, man? Yeah. No, no, I mean, do you love me? You know I love you. No, I mean, love me. Yes, I love you. Good. See, I knew you loved me, but you needed to be reminded of that. Now stop being bent out of shape about the denial thing and get on with the mission. This is what Jesus always does. I didn't think you were strong. I didn't anticipate on you being strong. I actually planned on you being weak. And in your weakness, I will make the story beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture to me. And whenever I'm in the middle of the courtyard in my life, in my home, and my kids are the mob, and they're trying to kill me, and, 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 and my wife is arrested up there and, and being held captive, and, and I'm, I'm warming my hands, and someone says, Do you know Jesus? I go, No! I'm fighting them right now. And then right afterwards, I'm like, oh, what have I done? A fruit of the spirit, where are you? And then Jesus whispers to me as he looks down at me, we're gonna hang out on a beach real soon, Renaud. Just don't get too bent out of shape. He said, rather have you here in the courtyard on mission and denying me and failing me here than having you hide in some house somewhere pretending that you're not denying me. Pete gets the denial story, but I think the other 10 guys, I think they need it too because they denied him long before Pete did. They never even came in the mission. They never even entered the courtyard. And frankly, I want to be the guy standing in the courtyard failing Jesus there than be the guy safely sitting at home so I don't have to fail him. This is our story. Now, considering all of that, considering Paul and understanding more deeply now what it is he struggled with and how difficult those struggles were and how his struggles weren't just circumstantial, they were internal as well. His great battle where Paul writes things like the flesh and the spirit are always fighting. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. I don't get it. And yet, in Christ I'm free, Paul now writes these words in Second Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read them again, but this time they're not Facebook. This time they're not like, oh, look at Paul, he's rising above the circumstances. Now we get what Paul is saying. Watch. Now these words awaken with great power. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, page 627, if you're interested. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see what Paul is saying here? I'm writing this to tell you, you're not the powerful one. I'm not the powerful one. I'm not the one that can rise above and not be crushed and not be depressed and not be despaired and not be weak and not be struggling. That's not me. That's God, and he's going to show this to me, and I'll show you how. Take a look. We are afflicted in every way. There's Paul saying, I want to be real. It's really hard. I feel overwhelmed. But we know we're not crushed. You see, he's not saying we feel not crushed. He goes, oh, we're afflicted in every way, but, but we're not crushed. Perplexed. That's a feeling. I'm really perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, yes, but, but, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be in, uh, manifested in our bodies. For we who live are also being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now look what he writes, skip down to 18, I mean to 16, I'm sorry. So we do not lose heart, why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says, here's why I keep going. Because I'm strong, because I transcend circumstances. No, I fight with Barnabas over John. Because I know. That as much damage as I do for the kingdom in the middle of mission, God will write a beautiful story in that. And no matter how hard it gets for me, this is just preparing me for the weight of the glory that will be ours in the kingdom of God because we lived on mission for Jesus instead of hiding away in safety and comfort and convenience. I do not want a light weight of glory in the future for a comfort and convenient life in the present. I want a life of mission now. Choosing God's way in my marriage, choosing God's way in my relationships, choosing God's way in my resources, choosing God's way in my circumstances, even when everything in me says, bail, man, you don't deserve this. So that in the end, I remember that it is preparing me for a great weight of great glory in the kingdom to come. This is our life. The kingdom, not here. This is our mission. Our life is there. Our mission is here. So buckle up. Jump in the courtyard. Make some choices. And when you feel like you're failing God there is blowing it left and right, damaging people, hours of psychologists are going to need to engage deeply in your children's lives. I've been there. Been there. Live there. Don't be so overwhelmed. Don't let the accuser tell you that you're blowing it when you feel like the, the mission of life that you're called into is dragging you underwater, like we did driving back from Miami. <laughs> no, please, just air, please. And then you sink down under the water and you're gulping for air. Can I, can I give you a piece of advice? Take a deep breath. Breathe that water in. Oh, it feels well. It's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not pretty. But as soon as you start breathing it in, here's what you'll discover. Underwater, Jesus can help you breathe. He really can. I'm not just I'm not just saying that to be all cutesy. I'm serious. We can breathe underwater. We can breathe on mission, even though it feels overwhelming. Stay the course. Jump jump further, jump harder, jump bigger. And God, as he blesses you with resources and relationships and things that are wonderful, praise him. Great, that's awesome. I hope he gives us plenty of stuff to enjoy. But that's not what I'm after. That's not what I'm after. I'm after a life that lives for the sake of the kingdom of God on mission, unafraid of what it will do to me, and just enjoying the fact that at least I'm not hiding in a house, comfortable and safe, waiting for life on planet Earth to come to an end. I'm out there in the war zone, and if I die there, I die well. It's not going to feel good, but it's going to be awesome. We are just like Paul and Barnabas, weak and frail, trying to make it through the courtyard. And when we fail Jesus, he's still enough for us. Ladies, gentlemen, you're free. You're free in the gospel, free from anything, free from failing, free to live on mission even when it's overwhelming, free because Jesus says this. Paul writes it this way. I am confident of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion in you. See, you're not in that sentence, nor am I. He who began the good work in you, he will finish it in you. You don't have to finish yourself for Jesus. He's already got you covered. He's already got you covered. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your incredible love for us, for the mercy and grace you pour upon us every day that you have seen fit not only to rescue our souls by the great work of redemption in your life, your death, and your resurrection, but also that you have restored our purpose and called us into a freedom that is so expansive that, in fact, we can literally live risky lives on mission and fail you there, acting all stupid and shouting at people we shouldn't and, and, and doing things that we probably shouldn't, coming out on the other side, just like Pete did, just like Paul did, grieving some, the the mess we tend to make in our humanity and yet sensing the deep freedom that you whisper to us saying, it's okay, we'll meet on a beach soon and I'll just remind you that you love me and that's enough and then you can keep on the mission. God, would you remind us daily that you are enough for us in our successes and in our failures, that you are enough for us to risk mission, to step into stories more overwhelming than we imagine we can live in, to stay the course in the things you've called us into, In our everyday lives, whether it's in our workplace, in our home, in our resources, in our circumstances, in our neighborhood, that wherever it is that you call us to say, come, come, trust me, take the hard way, would you remind us that in that choice, even if we struggle there, we're still right where we need to be. Encourage our hearts today, God that you don't use superheroes. You use regular people, and you make them great heroes for your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. Amen.